Season three, ladies and gentlemen, of Chewing the Gristle is upon us. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're going to let the good times roll. Are you ready to pound the gristle? We ride. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. A special treat this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the mighty Brian Ray playing guitar and bass for a certain Sir Paul McCartney, just a great musician and a great guy, and a possessor of some glorious guitars as well. Musical stylist of the highest order, we've got Brian Ray this week on Chewing the Gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the time has come once again for another exciting edition of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Koch. I'm here with the mighty Brian Ray, guitar player extraordinaire. You may have seen him with, oh, I don't know, Paul McCartney, Etta James, you know, just people like that. And uh, I got to say, Brian, I was lurking around the inner Googles a while back. And I saw that uh, interview you did with uh, Mark from Gibson showing your collection of guitars, and I don't think I like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cats, you got some axes. It, it's, it's strange. It's great to be with you, Greg. Thank you so much for inviting me on, and hello well, to thanks for coming, viewers and listeners. Well, yeah, it's a funny thing. It's like I've been a guitar nerd since I was a teenager. You know, I mean, I caught it probably just like you did. And I caught the collection bug, the collector's disease. And I can't shake it, don't want to shake it. Maybe it subsided a little bit in, in the past, you know, decade, but not by any measure, really. But anyway, right. I tell people that, you know, I've, I've cooled out and then I buy another one. But anyway, um, yeah, so then you're, you're caught between do I show this? Because then you sound like a big show off. And then there's people who really want to see rare stuff. And hey, man, it's uh, it's a part of the collecting is sharing, making people go like, oh, my God. You Absolutely. Know, and bless you. That. It's all good as far as I'm concerned. It just filled me with a sense of of guitar lust. You know, is it one of those things where earlier on you just knew that the older stuff was cool and you started early with that stuff? Or did at some point you kind of realize the value of it as well as the cool factor as far as tone and so on and so forth? How did that work for you? Uh, it's a great question. Um, my first guitar was an old, um, an old Telecaster and I was irresponsible and left it someplace as a kid. Yeah, I was 12 at 13. It got stolen and I was so mad at myself and so, so upset but then a Telecaster was $175 right. know, for, for an old one. And you see, I'm old as well. So they were making vintage guitars when I started shopping. Guitars. <laughs> Come on, you're not that old. I, I'm a little old. But anyway, so um, and then the next guitar I got after that was a 68 first year. Uh, we're going into Nerdville already. A 1968 Gold Top Les Paul. It was the ah. first year they came back with the the soap bar gold tops. And I got one and promptly went about, uh, you know, chiseling out one of the pickups to, to put in a humbucking in my own terrible fashion. But anyway, yeah, I, I got the uh, vintage bug when I was quite young. And my first big uh, vintage guitar really after that was my 57 gold top with humbuckings, which I got at about age 18 
for all of eight hundred and fifty dollars, which oh. I outrage at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I'll tell you what, Les Paul's just skyrocketed in in price pretty pretty quick. I mean, there's I always enjoyed reading the things about like when Dwayne Allman was shopping for his or you know, uh, Jimmy Page, like, I guess he bought that one from Joe Walsh for like 500 bucks or something like that. And at the, back then they were probably like, but that's a lot of money. And of course now they're like, what, 300,000 or whatever the case may be, depending on the, the, the figuration of the top and so on and so forth. Yeah. Up to a half a million dollars and more. I mean, they've gone for over a half a million dollars and that's a guitar that I think was $283 new. <clears throat> so that's quite, uh, Quite a, an appreciation right there, but uh, yeah, no doubt about it. But there certainly is a difference. I'm, I'm sure. Although I, if as long as we're geeking out here on on uh, guitar nerdy activities, when the '68 Les Pauls came back, supposedly they used a lot of the parts that were left over from the first go round. Is that correct? You're right. The the plastic bits, which are so hard to find, are identical to what they used in the late '50s guitars. So yes, that you know. Uh, in some cases, the plastic from a 1968 guitar is worth as much as the guitar is. But oh, yeah, so yeah, you're right. I mean, to answer your question as it began, like, yeah, there is a difference. And I guess I always knew it. As soon as I got that old Les Paul, I really got to recognize how much better these guitars were. Because in 73, the new Les Pauls weren't up to snuff. They, they, they just, it was a different league. Now they do great stuff. Right. Custom shop now is incredible, as you know. Same with Fender and Gretsch. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I always tell the story about what you knew firsthand from having that 57 is that, you know, the Les Pauls that most of us got to play like in the 70s or in the early 80s, you know, were kind of this muddy, muddy beast with really kind of high output pickups. And you're like, you'd listen to those old records like, you know, the Blues Breakers record or you know, whatever the case, or Bloomfield or any of these guys. And you're like, how come that guitar sounds so different from these, you know? And then you finally get to play an old one. And I always use the term, you know, they, they sound like a telly on steroids, but they do. I mean, they're, they're bright guitars. That's right. And I've seen you playing your, your uh, gold top with soap bars, if I'm not mistaken, as well as your many tellies. And you appreciate that about them. Yeah, they, they are single coil just like a Telecaster, maybe a little hotter, but yeah, they, they have that same stringy twang to them if they're set right, if they're set on the right amp in the right way and played the right way. And so much has to do with, as you well know, your hands and your touch and your own personal dynamics, you know. And that's the thing with, with old Lester's too, is that there really are an instrument that you can really manipulate him with your grubby little mitts to get all the dynamics and everything just out of him. That's why, you know, it sounds so cliche of a Les Paul through an old Marshall, or old Plexi, but by God, that's a glorious rig. <laughs> it's, it's a cliche for a reason. You know, if it sounds brilliant, you know, no doubt about it. Even though they're getting a little bit loud for the kids these days, you know how many. T- <laughs> of course, you probably don't have that problem with the gigs, gigs you're doing. But good lord, you show up at a gig now with a with a Marshall half stack, and people look at you like like you're going to accost them in some kind of felonious fashion. Which, of course, you are. But you know, which you're about to do exactly <laughs> in a benevolent sense. I'd like to say, <laughs> take that in a loving way. Peel your face off. 
That's right. Well, tell me a little bit about how you got started and what kind of music you were into from from the get. Well, you know what, Greg, it, it's crazy. I mean, you know, when I say I'm older, I am. I, I was born in 55. So that was kind of the year I understand that rock and roll also came about, you know, at least um, publicly. You know, it had been brewing since the early 50s, even the late 40s with jump blues and things like that. But at a young age, I was fortunate to have an older sister um, by a previous marriage of my father's, a half-sister, Jean. And she was 15 years my elder. And so she was a high school homecoming queen, gorgeous, talented young woman with all of her gorgeous, talented Bobby Sox or girlfriends. And I was two or three years old. She would take me babysitting to hang out with her girlfriends and they would do what? Play rock and roll. Because that when 1957, 1958 had saturated the earth. And so I would just, as a little kid, barely able to put together a sentence, uh, looking at these young girls going like cooing and, and ooing at pictures of Elvis and Ricky Nelson and little Richard and, you know, Chuck Berry. And, uh, and I guess I just thought, well, this is where the buzz is. I want to do this, you know? And so I, I bought the whole picture. I, I bought the culture, the look, the adrenaline, the excitement, but the music, you know? And when I first heard like Heartbreak Hotel and some of these early Elvis records that featured substantial guitar solos, like Scotty Moore was ripping, you know? And at a very early time, it's just like, you know, that was something to me and very thrilling. So I gravitated towards the guitar, but I started as a drummer later on. So anyway, it was it was rock and roll. Then it was rockabilly and and hot rod music, you know, like right. Ray and and uh, and Dwayne uh, Dwayne Eddy. And then it was, uh, you know, rockabilly with that Eddie Cochran and all that stuff. Then it was, of course, the next thing that I, I heard on the radio was uh, a little bit of pop and a little bit of Motown. Then I discovered pirate radio because I was given a transistor radio. So in 1962, I got this little transistor radio with a battery in it and a single little earplug, earpiece, and, uh, you know, was introduced to the wonders of pirate radio blasting out of uh, Tijuana at the hands of Wolfman Jack. And he was playing only R&B and doo-wop. He didn't care about any of that pop stuff. And at a very early age, I thought, well, this is where the action is. It's, you know, the influence of, of black music, rhythm and blues, jump blues, jazz on these white cats trying to fit in and making rock and roll. And it was very clear to me that that amalgam was the interesting thing to me and that pop music made by adults for kids was not my thing. Fascinating. I mean, you were really young. I mean, you were talking, you're like seven, you're six, seven years old when you're listening to this stuff. Yeah, when Motown stuff came out, yes, I was seven, but I was indoctrinated at the age of three. That's so, insane. Um, and then, of course, everything changed when the Beatles came and everyone else came through the double doors behind them, you know, rushing through, you know, like, you know, Romans. And, right. uh, and uh, then everything changes. Some people say it 
the world went from black and white to color, and and then we were off to the races. You know. Well, you must have had a, a much different perspective than like your schoolmates and stuff when the Beatles came. Could you because you would have understood where they were coming from in terms of their roots and the songs they were covering initially, and so on and so forth. It, that's interesting. Yeah. But you could feel it was a very direct connection. You could feel that this wasn't adults in lab coats telling other adults what to play so the kids would like it. Right, These right, right. Kids. These were little rebels. The, the thing that attracted me to the Beatles, the Stones, the Animals, the Kinks, all of that phalanx of talent that came through those doors was that they were all like they looked like they were in a little gang. It was in like an after-school club, like I wanted to be in when I was six or seven, like a secret agent club, you know? Well, they did that. And some of them were wearing the same kind of little suits and stuff like that, but they were a little badass, scrappy tribe. And I got it. I got the humor. We all did. We all saw it live on television on Ed Sullivan. And I don't mean to sound like a total boomer, but I just kind of am. But, you know, I just bought the whole package. I bought the whole thing. I, I get it. I mean, I talked to a lot of people who knew exactly where they were when uh, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. I, I was born in 66, so I missed it. Uh, but it's interesting because um, my older brother, who I had to room with, was also you know, 14 years older than I, I was. So I had five girls in between. I was the youngest he was the oldest. So I grew up listening to his music, which at that point, would, which would have been pushed down the, the field a little bit. So it was Beatles, Stones, but like Hendrix and Cream and James Gang and, and all that other kind of stuff. But it's interesting when when you get turned on to music at such a young age, um, it's fascinating because it's uh, it just seems like compared to a lot of schoolmates and stuff like that, you just know more about the world, it seems, you know what I mean? In terms of getting into this music and the history of it and kind of the, uh, you know, what's, of course, when you're always looking up to your older siblings, as you were saying, who are cool and they have, you know, uh, their, their friends are cool and they're doing fun stuff. You look up to them in a way that you, you revere this music almost as a result of your reverence for your older sibling as well. And so it just gives you a little different perspective. Was that an advantage or a disadvantage or just was what it was for you when you were, when you were in high school, say, you know, that's so interesting. Yeah. But, um, now after you telling me what your brother played you, I totally understand your guitar style, which I've enjoyed. Uh, well, mainly on Instagram, what a great uh, venue that is that you just casually shred. And I hear, you know, like, so many things, but I hear, you know, Joe Walsh, because yeah. he, he had that element that a lot of cats miss, that that Beck had in spades, Hendrix had, that, um, you know, to a lesser degree, uh, you know, Page and some of these other guys, and that's humor. And, and, and you have that. And I remember commenting on some of your playing uh, – to sidebar about you for a minute, that you have that one thing that you can't teach. If you didn't get that as a kid, if Jeff Beck's playing on the album Truth didn't make you laugh, right? and you didn't see a value in that, and, and you just saw, you know, sad blues or anything, you know, then you're a different kind of player. That's cool too, but I, it's a member of a weird club. Humor and guitar playing and you can't teach it. But anyway, to go on, 
my mentor, my half-sister, Jean, also ended up being, as I said, she was talented. So she was a member of a folk rock duo with her husband, Jim. Jim and Jean had records on uh, Verve Folkways or Verve Forecast and also on the Phillips label. And uh, they did about three albums and... Um, they toured around a lot. They were on Murray the K with the Who. I mean, you know, so I was looking up to them as well in the folk scene. And just as I saw them at the Ice House or the Troubadour playing true folk music with a banjo and an acoustic, and Gene would sometimes go to bass. Then they got Hofner violin, bass, and violin guitar matching with the built-in fuzz on the guitar. Ah. <laughs> and I watched as their folk music turned to folk rock. And then they invited in Harvey Brooks on bass. And, um, you know, some of these great players who played on their albums, Al Cooper. Oh, yeah. From Like a Rolling Stone. So they um, that mentorship really grew for me. When they broke up as a team and as a marriage... I began to play with Gene. My first gig was at the Troubadour at a Hootenanny. So it very much influenced me. All that stuff, while, you know, learning about how all my British invasion guys that we just mentioned, I learned a year later that they were all informed by black blues players. And so then I went down this rabbit hole in like about 1969 of learning about the Kings, you know, Albert, Freddie, BB, uh, about, you know, Otis Span, Otis Rush, you know, like all these great players that, um, you know, and Buddy Guy and all these guys, David T. Walker, that informed those cats, you know. And then I was off to the races. So I don't know. I feel like I went off on a tangent there, but yeah. No, no, no. It's all good. I was, I was wondering, you know, when you were talking about the Troubadour and the Hootenannies, I was thinking I, I watched that um, uh, that David Geffen, uh, becoming David Geffen show, and he was talking was talking about all that stuff with the Troubadour. I mean, was, was it really like that? Were all these people just kind of hanging out and like the next person that would be coming down the line would actually be at these Hootenannies? And it was, was it that much of kind of a you know, the happening place at that particular point in time? It very much was. But as a kid, like, I didn't really, you know, you have to keep in mind when I played that first gig there, I was 14, 15 years old, Monday night, hoot night. Right then when it was starting to blow up at the hoot nights on a Monday nights at the Troubadour. And the bar scene outside is now is a storied, uh, you know, L.A., you know, byline you would see Glenn Fry and and uh, and Linda Ronstadt and J.D. Souther and a young Jackson Brown all lined up having drinks together. And um, well, as a kid, I wasn't aware of them yet because they weren't famous yet. But I knew there was a scene going on and I knew I was hanging out at Doug Weston, who owned the Troubadour, up in the dressing room upstairs. And I felt like I belonged in this club. And I think that was the biggest factor for me, like. What my sister brought to me, Jim and Jean both, was an entree into a community that uh, because of their station, I didn't have to break into. I was already invited into. And I didn't recognize that. It, was, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so privileged. I was just like slid in there with them and, you know, introduced as here's my young brother, Brian, and 
you know, like this little blonde kid waving. But um, I think that that did a lot for me in terms of confidence and a sense of, of belonging, you know, being in Los Angeles, a lucky thing. And I, I can't imagine that that, um, you know, that being from, say, Wisconsin or Ohio, you know, that wasn't a luxury that anyone else could could have. I just felt really lucky about that later on when I recognized how lucky I was. Yeah. Absolutely. So how about your your folks at that point in time? Were you were you someone that had this fascination with music, but also did well in school or were you a total rebel at that point? How were your parents with the whole pursuit of musical activity? Yeah, well, good question. My 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 parents split up in 63 and that was devastating. And uh, that was the same time where, you know, JFK was shot. But it was only three months later the Beatles arrived to tell us all it was okay to feel good again and give us something to distract our, you know, our national grief. My mom remarried uh, a couple of years later in about 66. So we were building a new family life and we moved to the West Side. Um, and my parents were very liberal, my stepdad and my mom. Um so our house, fortunately, they supported me and allowed me to grow my hair down to wherever. And, and you know, I had to earn my money to buy my first car uh, and to buy my first guitar. I fucking lawnmower, you know, gardening, uh, paper routes, doing whatever I had to do to get my first uh, guitar and car. You know, when I turned 16, I had my first car and shit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just lucky that they supported me and didn't discourage me from it. They, they did when I got to be rebellious. I started doing the, uh, you know, um, the marijuana. Yes. And things like that. The herbs superb. And the little pills and things like that that make you go up and down sometimes at the same time. Right. When I got caught doing that shit, I was punished with my Les Paul being taken away from me. So, I wanted my Les Paul back. So I, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I rode the fence like I'm a teenager. I'm going to be bad, but can I please have my guitar back? Uh, my parents would, would hide my, my Telecaster as a, as a, as a youth, they'd put it in their closet and then they'd go out and I was like, I know where it is. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, man. I'm a kid. I'm curious. I- it in the goddamn closet. Yeah, you put it up high, thinking I can't get a ladder. Right. <laughs> oh Lord, ever. So, did you go from high school right into just playing? Did did you uh, did you study at all in terms of any kind of formal music education or any of that kind of thing? I kind of wish I would have. Uh, I I'm self taught, and uh, you know, I went away to a boarding school um, because I think they were trying to you know, help me get some discipline. And they'd done it for my brother and it seemed to work for him uh, at least for a year. And uh, so I went away for a year and at that time felt like that sense of independence. 1968, now Blue Cheer, uh, Disraeli Gears, uh, Access Bold as Love. Oh man, my God. It was like a mind-blowing Jeff Beck Truth. All these albums came out at once and it was just like, 
and Buffalo Springfield. So I have this, this great relationship with all that thing, uh, all those things. I started to play a little guitar in a, in a, in school, in a class, but I knew more than my other student pals. And so I ended up sort of assisting the teacher a little bit. I also had a drum set up there at boarding school and I was allowed to go fucking shred on drums and get my yayas out, you know, um, not my yayas, but my yayas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, I, I really enjoyed having that outlet uh, at, at school and, uh, you know, uh, went into music in high school. Yeah, right out of high school, my high school band kind of morphed into a band that became the backing band for Bobby Boris Pickett doing the Monster Mash. Ah. Uh, my sister Jean was one of the backup singers. My buddy Brian England was on drums. My high school band, but with my sister. So that was my first sort of professional tour doing Six Flags over Texas and stuff like that. Aha. Yeah. That, that's pretty awesome. So I've, you've remained tight with your sister. Is you guys still, uh, is she still around? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, my sister Jean passed uh, some time ago. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, but I remain close to her in spirit and uh, have nothing but lovely thoughts and memories for her and gratitude. Yes, indeed. So tell us a little bit about how, you know, things progressed to the point where you ended up working with uh, Etta James. That's got to be a fascinating tale. It is an interesting story. It's kind of a long story, and I'll try to cut it down a little bit. I had gotten my next big job out of uh, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Monster Mash. I was introduced by... Uh, by them to a guy named Phil Kaufman. And Phil Kaufman is a storied rebel in rock and roll lore who uh, was uh, at the time working with the Rolling Stones, but more prominently with uh, Graham Parsons. Okay. The Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, well, Phil Kaufman had gotten himself in a heap of trouble and if you want to Google Phil Kaufman, go oh, see the one that stole the body and burned and burned it in Joshua Tree or wherever. That's the story. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when I met Phil Kaufman, it was because I was playing with the Crypt Kicker Five of all bands as a fundraiser for Phil Kaufman to get out of his Grand Theft Parsons. <laughs> so. That's how I met Phil Kaufman, okay, under those wild circumstances. Well, Phil Kaufman kind of took me in. He'd lost his best friend, Graham, and he kind of took me in, and he was a little bit lost at that moment himself, to say the least. And he was also road managing Etta James, who was just out of heroin uh, addiction treatment. And um, she was building a new career out of, uh, out of the ashes, and Phil Kaufman said, hey, man, why don't you stay over tonight in the guest room? Because tomorrow I'm going up to Edda's rehearsal. And guess what? The guitar player can't make it. Bring your guitar. We'll see if, you know, she'd like you to sit in. And I did. And then I did. And then she said, I like that little white kid and invited me to play in Long Beach the next night. Uh, and of course, I said, yes, that was a blast. And I was a little greenhorn and uh, had a great time as super privileged of course to be with these monster players that she had around her 
Then I didn't hear from her from a cup for a couple of months. And then she called me one night and said, Bran, I'm up in Ventura. Can you get up here? I go on in about two hours. And I said, I'm on my way. And I threw my super reverb in the, the back of the car and got my gold top and went up the coast highway and set up and played. And that was the first of, uh, you know, 15, first gig of 15 years with Etta James. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, crazy story. And let's just talk about a Les Paul into a super reverb for a second, if we might. <laughs> but remember back then, you could get them like for nothing. They were, no one wanted super. I mean, I, it's the way I remember. You could get like, you know, in the, in the eighties, you could get a super reverb all day long for 250 bucks. Black, blackface supers all day. Two, 250, 200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my, my aunt before that actually was a blonde basement a blonde uh, piggyback basement. And that thing sounded so good. Different mid-range stack than, than most of the other uh, Fender amps of the time. And they just, they just blaze. What a great sounding amp that was. Yeah. What a great combo and loud as hell. Yes. I didn't know I had the treble up high and turned it up at around seven and just blazed. But uh, I enjoyed that combo. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's was it one of those things where you just turned it up and used the volume control on the guitar? There's your clean sound, turn it up, there's the paste, and away you go. It's exactly right, man. You if you see any videos of guys like you and I back in those days, wasn't a lot of foot pedal work, but a whole lot of pinky on the volume and tone knob. Always, 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 almost like involuntary motion. It's a part of your playing to control the volume and the dynamics and the tone. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it's interesting because I think a, a lot of younger cats, you know, they're like, who plays a volume that's not on 10 all the time? You know, because they're used to all their gain stages being on with pedals and whatnot. It's it's fascinating. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, just a different school of guitar playing. Whatever it takes is my motto. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I do love, I mean, there is times where I just going out of the house, I, I've got a, I got a thing for Vibraluxes as well. And um and just turning one of those things up, like a Telly straight into that or, you know, a Lester or whatever, man, they, they're like a plexi with reverb, except they're not deafening. And you just go out and I turn it against the wall and just dime it. And it just sounds magnificent. But, you know, to your point, you know, pinky on the volume control is where the channel switching's at. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And there's nothing like a great amp being cleaned up a bit with the volume knob. Um for you guitar nerds out there, give That's it a right. And and uh, another thing about a Vibralux reverb, I, I've owned a couple in my life and no longer do, but um, isn't that just a super reverb cut in half? Yeah, pretty much. It's just a, <laughs> it's the same head, but with only two tens. Rather Correct. Than and, and, about, and it's only 35 watts as opposed oh, to... Oh, is it staged in? It, get, it gets angrier sooner. Oh, really? Oh, that's good. No. <laughs> But you know what? My my favorite one of all of them now uh, that my friend Joe B, Joe Bonamassa, turned me on to the Vibro Verb. Yes. Only for one year, the brown Vibro Verb. Oh, my God. A friend of mine I grew up with, he, he's got an original. And yes, it's it's devastating. It is great. It's, uh, I think, 22 watts, something like that. But woof, yep. boy, pretty sounding amp right there. Yes, indeed. So much gear, so little time. 
But yeah. let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about some Les Paul activity because you've got a burst or two, do you not? I have one burst. I've owned several over the years, and um, you know they're always. Uh, God, it's the grail, you know, it's the thing that you was always out of my reach when I was younger because, oh, I wasn't going to pay $1,600 for a Sunburst Les Paul. Right. No, 2000. What are you crazy? 25. I never. Right. And now, as we said, they're a half a million bucks. Now I ain't paying a half a million dollars for it. I, I wait and search like a snake under a rock for something to come along that will catch my interest at a good value. And right. uh, I've done that a couple of times. And I have one now that just kind of no intentions of getting one because I, you know, hey, it was between work, man. What are you going to do? Go buy an expensive guitar right now. It seemed crazy. But one came to me over a text message from a luthier 10 blocks away. And basically, Greg, I couldn't help myself. Uh, I understand. So I'm I'm rushing around selling things to um, to rationalize it right now. So yes, I understand. It's always like you know people always think, oh yeah, we just magically get these old guitars. But it's like no, after years of accumulating stuff that's you know of various different values, then when you get the the holy grail, then you're able to kind of move sideways and add a little cash to it and sell this. And you know, it's we just do what we got to do to get the tools we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would imagine you've got a great little collection too. Uh, you know, it's not. You know, uh, I've got a '53 Tele. That's kind of my 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 biggest ticket item, and uh, and a lot of a lot of custom shop stuff over the years. But um, yeah, that '53 Tele is 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 something. And, and you know, and actually, this past summer, I bought a. Um, I wasn't even looking to. Uh, to get anything per se, but it was on Father's Day. My birthday is like two days after Father's Day. And we had a lot of, you know, the kids were all home because of the COVID. And, you know, there was a bunch of different stuff going on at home. We kind of breathed a sigh of relief after some things kind of got settled that were kind of in um, in flux. And uh, my wife's like, why don't you go out? You need some self-care. I'm like, okay. So I took, I need self-care as maybe I need a new guitar. <laughs> And so I walked into the store and I and I saw this bigger headstock strat. Now I always had a thing for um, you know the bigger headstock track just because of Hendrix, right? And Richie Blackmore. And uh, and I saw this guitar up there. I was like, man, that, that looks pretty nice. I go, what's the deal with that strat up there? And they're like, oh, it's a 74. And I and I reached up because I was tall enough to do so, and I picked it up and it weighed like nothing. It's like seven and a quarter. And I brought it, I was like, what? What is this? And the guy, some single owner guy down in Texas had it, still had the three-way toggle switch on it. It was pristine. And I plugged that thing in, and it's, I love that guitar. And I had a 63 for a while, and it, it was, you know, it had been refinished, and I broke the headstock, don't ask me how. Uh, and one of the pickups wasn't quite right, so I got rid of that years ago. But I love this damn guitar, and it's, it's a 74. Normally, you'd think... Well, you know, early 70s, not exactly the holy grail years for strats, but by God, you find a good one as this one is, and it's fantastico. Yeah, wow, that's so cool to hear. I mean, it's really about luck, you know, right. that, that neck, uh, when you when you tap on it with a knuckle and you're you're holding it uh, you know, off the guitar, and you go like this, goes dong, and then you get a body that resonates in his light, and those two things together resonate and make a little bit of joy, then you've got a great guitar. It really doesn't matter what else you stick on it. 
that's the guitar. It's the resonance of the wood. And you, when you say a light one, probably going to be great. So because the problem is, is that most of those early 70s strats are super heavy. Right. Got a rare one. Is it a sunburst or what is it? it? It's a sunburst one. Yeah. Very cool. And it plays great. sounds great. You know what? And I like the three-way toggle switch. You know, it's one of those things where it's like when I listen to those old Hendrix records, I was always like, well, it kind of sounds like he's like in the two or the four position. But I'm like, no, he only I mean, I think he probably wedged it in there every now and again on a few tunes. But for the most part, he always played a three way toggle switch. And those are my favorite sounds. I'm realizing a lot of those tones was just him kind of choking up on the pick and getting those kind of, you know, clean, pinchy harmonic things that he would do when playing rhythm sometimes, kind of get that Curtis Mayfieldy thing or when he was doing kind of his Albert King lead stuff. But it was all in that middle pickup when he would do that stuff. And so now I'm playing this guitar and going, you know, I don't miss the two and the four. But what's interesting is that when you you wedge it in there, those those old toggle switches seem to have a little bit more stickiness. So you can get it in there. And but it's almost, <clears throat> but it's almost one of those things where it's like it's 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 better for your discipline because like when you have a five way toggle switch, you can never figure out where you <laughs> where you want to stay. You're always freaking around with that damn thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. Yeah. So so now if I get get in that two or that four, it's like you got to commit. <laughs> you really got to look for it, man. You got to practice that. Exactly. Where that? That's so cool. Like I always thought, like we don't have to wait till tomorrow of Hendrix's off of Axis. Yes assume that was uh the four position but yeah, i guess and it might and it might be because you know that tune and but like castles made of sand i always thought that that was a four but that sounds like the middle pickup to me wait till tomorrow sounds a little too you know it sounds like it's a four right or it, 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 like it, it i could be totally wrong but what's interesting is i saw that you know there's a couple of cool Instagram feeds that some people run where they just post all these obscure pictures of Hendrix. They just collect all, you know, it's like Jimmy addiction or something. And of course, being a super fan, I'm like, I'll follow that. And the pictures are just cool. They're like random shots you've never seen before. And there was this picture of Hendrix with this white Strat with three mini toggle switches on it. So someone had early on, you know, made a, Hey, Jimmy, check this out. You got the three ties so you can kind of dial in those pickups. So it's like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm sure he was using those sounds. Interesting. I've never seen that. It sounds like something someone Photoshopped to fuck with us. Well, that could be too. You, but, that, uh, that's a good point, but I, it, it looked pretty, it was a black and white kind of, you know, obscure, obscure picture. You never know. I mean, people were, um, I'm sure he got exposed to stuff all the time back then. They're like, Hey, check this out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That would be a very early adopter, right? I mean, that would have had to have been the very first time somebody did that. But, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I think about those middle positions two and four as being a little bit dated sounding to me now. It, it, uh, it has an association with mid 70s, late 70s. Not that that's a bad thing. Uh, Singer songwriter rock and yep. pop and some R&B like people all of a sudden really gravitated towards that sound. And it, and it sort of, to me, maybe was a part of my life that I would rather forget or something. <laughs> so, but I bet you anything like everything, it's come back around like, oh man, have you tried the two and four spot? It's so cool. Like, uh, you know, we're like, oh yeah, been there, done that. Right, 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 right. It's definitely got a very 
identifiable sound that it meets immediately takes you to whatever you can relate to it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's Mark Knopfler, or that's you know, I think you were thinking of Still the One. Remember that song? Who was that? What was that band? Orleans. Yeah, Orleans. It, thank uh, you. Yeah, and his solo on that. That was, was bitching, right? Oh, yeah, I mean John Hall, amazing. I saw them at the at the bitter end years ago. Trio, spectacular, spectacular. He became a con from New York, by the way, John Hall. Oh no, kidding! Fact. Very interesting. Or another band of that era that would have had that Strat sound was the venerable Pablo Cruz would have had uh, that exactly. So th- w- what happened is we went into yacht rock territory, and yes. I am guilty as charged of being uh, a yacht rock. Um, uh, enthusiast, follower, um, contributor. Uh, I played on a bunch of yacht stuff and, um, it was always the two and four. So maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Um, but no, I, we came up with some spectacular tones on, well, in my opinion, anyway, the engineer more than me, uh, through a, a super or Vibralux with my 56 Strat in the two or four position, but with all this, you know, studio, like, uh, you know, 1176, a certain volume pedal, a certain cable, a certain gain structure on the board and an API. Oh my God. We got some great yacht tones on the, uh, on the first and second Robbie Dupree albums. You, you'll hear that. And wow. So quintessential, uh, quacky two and four tones that yeah, because because those towns that we would hear on record, to your point about all this extra minutia going in to get those tones, because you just grab a Strat in the two and four position, you're not hearing the first Clapton record Strat sound. You know what I mean? Or the or the Orleans tone, or you know what I mean? Or, or even the Mark Knopfler tone. I mean, it's like those are tweaked. You know, there's a compressor lurking here, some kind of studio devilry happening. Yes, devilry. Yes, boot. <laughs> But I remember I always wanted to get a Strat and get in that just because of of Knopfler alone, just to get that sound. But yeah, it's one of those things now where it's like I just prefer the just the neck, the middle by itself, or the bridge on a Strat. And man, it's it's uh, it's got so much more girth and majesty. Yes, girth and majesty. <laughs> we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers. Makers of the Greg Cock Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Well, tell us a little bit about. We'd be remiss if we didn't discuss your situation with Sir Paul McCartney and how that. I mean, I understand that. You got kind of add your first gig was actually the Super Bowl. Is that is that in fact correct? That's right. Yeah, I had been working in uh, France with uh, a magnificent drummer by the name of Abe Laboreal Jr. Yes, uh, and he and I started playing in France for two different artists, Milan Farmer and Johnny Hallyday. Oh yes, on and off between those two very different tours for about five years, starting in about '96. Now, uh, did you do any of those tours with my buddy Reggie Hamilton on bass by chance? Yeah, sure did. Yeah, Reggie was on both of those. No, he was only on the Johnny Halliday stuff. Yeah, good, great player. Um, so, um, yeah, we were doing those gigs together, 
And then Abe left and he left to go do an album with Paul McCartney. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so lucky, my God. So my tour in France ended up uh, with a different drummer of that last one, came home. Uh, I had gotten an offer with Shakira to go out on tour right around 9-11, right after 9-11. And I said, you know, yes, I would. I had done her laundry service album. So I was already in the camp. And then she, uh, I said, but I, I, I need business class, you know, air because she travels to like, you know, all over the world in South America. And, and then uh, she, they came back and said, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We've hired a different guitar player. We can't do business class. It'd be coach, except for me, the band leader, he said. Uh, and I said, well, OK. And then I was bummed. I was like, oh, my God, I've turned down what could be years of work. Because I needed business class. What a brat. During 9-11. Oh, my God. I've blown it. And then my very next thought was, well, Abe just got a job playing on Paul McCartney's new album. And my other friend, Rusty Anderson, is playing for What If? And uh, uh, two months later, Abe was at a birthday party of mine and and I said, so are you going to do any touring? And he goes, yeah, we are. We're going to get together and do, you know, the Super Bowl thing. And I said, well, man, who's going to play bass while he's playing guitar and then switch to guitar when he's on bass? Uh, uh, you know, and he said, yeah, we're looking for a guitar player who plays a bit of bass. And I went, oh, I'd love a shot at that. <laughs> goes, okay, that's a cool idea. And I just really just sort of jumped on that that sentence of his. And he um, said, hey, that's a cool idea. I'll give your name to David Kahn, the great producer who produced uh, many of Paul's albums, including that one they were working on, Driving Rain. Well, David Kahn was charged with putting a band together for this aforementioned um, Super Bowl appearance and the, the pregame like single song, not 2002. And so I get a call from David Kahn, like a couple days later. Hey, this is David Kahn. We haven't met. I got your number from Abe Laporia. Would you like to come down to the office? There's a possibility that, you know, you might be the right guy for this uh, TV appearance, our Super Bowl appearance on all over the world. Would you be interested? And I went, hell yeah. And he said, can you be down in my office in a half hour? And I said, hell yeah. And I ran down there, had an interview well, which led to him saying, well, I have a good feeling about this, that just chatting while playing an old Telecaster 53. Yes. While playing an old Hoffner bass, you know, but not even plugged in. You're just watching my hands and listening to my touch and whatever while talking music at the same time. And uh, he said, well, you know, I got to go now, but I think, you know, you have a shot at this. I know they're talking to other guys. I'll put your name forward and good luck, man. We'll see what happens. It's not really up to me. And go, okay, well, thank you so much. Good to meet you. I left. I get a call the next morning from Paul's people saying, what, you know, what carrier would you like to be flown to New Orleans to play with Paul McCartney? And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> the ticket for the next day. Like I left the next day to go to uh, New Orleans to meet and play with Paul McCartney for that Super Bowl. And Sweet Jesus. That led to what's now 20 years. It's a, it's a long time, yeah. So 
I mean, I'm sure it's hard to put it into words, but describe just how transform, transformational as far as your life was concerned, getting that gig and having it last this long. You know what I mean? I mean, as we know in the music business, I mean, get a gig for six months is is sometimes, <laughs> you know, a triumphant. It's but so true. And I had no idea that it would go beyond the the one song at that Super Bowl, which in itself would have been enough for me. I mean, you know, I had gotten lucky with Etta open for a couple of stones tours with Etta James. And I felt like I had, I had been already so lucky, you know? Um, but this was the topper playing a song with Paul McCartney. Right. I mean, you know, you know what that is. And, um, so I was overjoyed at that. And I was saying goodbye after the, Super Bowl game that we played at, we're up in a skybox watching it. And I said, well, the game's almost over. I better run over and say thank you and goodbye. I don't know if I'll ever see this guy again. And I did. And uh, he said, well, you know, come back to the bar. You know, we're going to have a drink. And I said, okay, great. Come back to the bar and we're all sitting around talking. And then after some time, he gets him and goes, okay, guys, well, I got to go. And he's giving everyone a hug. There's about eight of us. Give everyone a hug. He comes to him, he gives me a hug, and he goes, okay, Brian, well, welcome aboard. Uh, stick with Abe and Rusty. They'll show you the ropes and see you in a couple of weeks. And I was like, what? I turned to Abe, and I said, did he just say what I think he said? And he said, yeah, dude. And so I ran home and started preparing to actually play, you know, uh, Paul's uh, stuff. And I got a big stack of CDs and a you know, a mic stand and a 12 string and a six string and a bass and an electric and just started learning everything I could. And, um, you know, I really took it, uh, took it to heart and woodshedded like crazy because it sure. was the most important thing I'd ever, you know, been offered. And so I just worked my ass off till I got to the point where I thought I could do okay. I wasn't sure, but I thought, well, you know, I'll know after the first rehearsal, if he's, you know, frantically sending somebody to make phone calls, I'll be in trouble. But, you know, nobody was running around at the end of the first day, those five weeks later when we started rehearsing, he uh, said, turned to us and goes, hey, okay, guys, sounds great. I'll see you tomorrow. And I went, oh, my God, I think I'm going on tour with Paul McCartney. You know, oh. now we only had two weeks to prepare for a, a national tour. And, uh, you know, there, there I was. You now, know, is I, he someone that likes likes a set bunch of tunes for a tour, or does he like to pull stuff out of his hat depending on his mood? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the first five, six days of our music rehearsal, we then went to production rehearsal right after that. So we literally only played for 11 days before going out on tour. You know, half of them were in music only and the second half in production and music. Uh, and uh, we started with, by the time five days had passed, we'd played 45 songs together. Oh, good Lord. Quite a lot for you listeners out there. That's a lot of music. It's a lot of music. It's a lot of vocals and a lot of switching and a lot of guitars. And, you know, my, uh, my uh, hard drive was very full at that point. But, um, you know... Uh, we played our first gig at Oakland, California. And at the end of it, we were all together. We were all like 
we're all in it together, man. It was just like, okay, here we go. And then after, right. oh my God, did that just happen? We all felt the same way. And we were off and running, man. It was a big, big deal. Paul is uh, an, an amazing leader, an inspiring cat. Music just comes out of every pore of him. He walks, talks, and acts music. He's just music. He is walking, talking music. And it's such an incredible sort of deep inspiration. And, um, you know, um, I don't know, such a just an important influence that I just feel really fortunate to have fallen into, you know. That's awesome. I mean... How about this? I mean, when you were learning these songs, I mean, obviously songs you've heard your whole life, but when you kind of really had to, you know, pull up the hood and, and figure out what's going on, was were there any big surprises to you in terms of, man, I had no idea that this song was this hard or this simple or, you know what I mean? Were there any like aha moments that you discovered actually having to really get under the hood of the, of the, the catalog, if you will? Great. You know, cause I, I, I really don't come from a, um, a long cover band, uh, story in my life. You know, I went from my cover band was my high school band, you sure. know, pulled from all over the place. We're doing like pro call harem and Rod Stewart. It was like the most bizarre, you know, anaply of rock you've ever heard. But, um, so I was never in like a Beatles set or a stone set. I was in a, you know, a high school band. And then I was with Etta James. So I never really got into it. And then I was doing pop and R and B record making. So, by nature of my history, I'd never done that. So when it came time to get under the hood, as you said, I really had to dissect these things. Now, yeah, they were in my blood. And a lot of these songs, you just know. Sure. You learn music by ear. So um, a lot of it I knew. But when you go and get under the hood, now I got to play bass on the song Getting Better from Sgt. Peppers. And right. what I was, you know, fascinated with is, is that they were just, these were just takes. They weren't like, okay, let's do it again. That's the chorus. That's the verse part. That's the intro part. They were just, when the band came together, that was the take. But what you would find was like in the case of the song getting better, now I'm charged with learning this bass part because um, Paul's going to play guitar on this live. Now, what I learned was uh, that the bass was different in every chorus and uh. it wasn't dependable. But I thought, you know, as these songs were meaningful to me, the records are meaningful to me. So I'm going to learn it weird like he played it weird. So the first chorus is going to be different than the second one. Go listen to it. It's a completely different bass part in the second chorus. And, and that's fascinating to me. Uh, the other challenges were, learning to play these, you know, weighty parts and being so lucky to play Paul's bass lines and trying to honor them as best I could in my own way, but to learn to sing backup parts at the same time. It was a lot. It, yeah, I would imagine. A lot of this, man, and, you know, it called on the, the best of all of us, you know, and still does. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, man. And the guitar stuff, equally, I want to honor the records. So I'll get an old Gretsch. And I'll sure. up the tone and I'll get a little EQ that makes it sound kind of tinky rather than full, you know, to play right. things like um, All My Lovin' or Getting Be uh, or, um, you know, uh, Can't Buy Me Love or any of those kind of things. 
Crazy. And and how about how about Paul's um version of how he likes to does he like the songs to evolve at all or he wants them pretty much the way they were or, or does he some kind of go hey let's do this in this section and you know what i mean is 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 there flexibility there it kind of depends on the tune i would imagine that that's a great question the truth is is that these songs have evolved over time i mean like a song like um uh, let me roll it from has evolved into a completely different thing uh, gone is the simplicity of that with, right. a, with a little Farfisa or Vox organ going. Now it's a B3 and Abe is just shredding. So it's a very different picture. But my bass part is remain true to the record. Okay, okay. I'm the one guy. No, I'm kidding. So um, I'm holding down the fort. <laughs> the fort is on fire. No, um, but... Uh, yeah, they evolved. What we do is we take our cue from Paul. If Paul gets free in his piano part or his vocal part or his guitar part, then we'll go free with him. But we're very tuned into each other. We're very tuned into Paul. We're not in our own little in-ear monitor world listening to our record and doing our thing. Right. We're in a community where it's like a chamber uh, thing where you're really tuned into each other's dynamics and playing, you know. Cool. Now, when you're when you're traveling in that in that entourage, how much is it? Are you like in a in a um, a pod, if you will, or do you have the freedom to go out and kind of check out the different towns you're into in a certain extent, or do you do you guys have to keep relatively sequestered just the way that that operates, or do you have some freedom to roam and ramble? Well, you know, truth is, is that. We haven't played since the pandemic happened. So as far as a, a bubble like that, uh, that would be a much more restrictive. Uh, right. um, we don't have that going on yet. And there's no, no plans uh, announced of us doing anything uh, in the near or far future. But uh, I would imagine if we did, there would be, it would be very bubblicious. But, bubblicious. But for right now, yeah, we're in, in a bubble. Uh, in touring in, in the olden style, you know, just pre-COVID touring style. We were, you know, half of the time we traveled just with Paul and some of that includes private air travel and some of that is commercial. Uh, and then we would hub out of a certain city and fly in and out every couple of days with Paul straight to sound check, which is delightful. And then other times we're on tour where the band is in a bus and Paul just flies after the gigs after every gig, we're together on our bus uh, to toast and to talk about the show and to have a slice of pizza and a margarita, as Paul would have, or in my case, Perrier. Right. Uh, uh, because I've put those things behind me, Greg. You and me both. It's oh, been really? many, many a year, 26 years, as a matter of fact. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Well, that's that's another podcast. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> How to rock without being loaded. That's correct. Uh, it's actually quite easy for you kids out there if you're That's listening. Indeed. Very freeing for you kids out there. Anyway, listen to Papa Greg and Uncle Bry. That's we, it. Um, but yeah, um, we'll have a great toast and then he'll get off the bus and go on to his air uh, trip wherever he's headed to the next city or back home. 
So it's half and half, sometimes with Paul, sometimes just on tour. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it. It's a, it's a vagabond's life. You know, I'll tell you what, that sounds magnifico. You know, before we uh, before we get too far here, I just want to mention that I, I played a couple of your signature guitars back in the day at Wildwood and they were magnificent. The, the Silver Fox SG. Yes. And uh, tell us a little bit about how that that whole thing came about with uh, Gibson. Yeah, I was approached um, years ago by Victor Pra, who is a um, Big sunburst, Les Paul. He's addition. one of the burst brethren. Is that correct? Yeah, he is one of the big burst believers. And he's got a series of books called Burst Believer. And uh, are burst believers. And oh, okay. All, uh, the latest one has a forward by Jimmy Page. And it's got interviews with, you know, all the big guys that we know and love. So Vic called me up and said, hey, man, I've been doing a sort of a collector series with Gibson Custom Shop. And it'd be really cool to do a, you know, a Brian Ray run. And I said, hey, I'd be honored. And he said, what would you think about uh, a gold top Les Paul, like your old gold top? They'll cracked and weather checked. And I said, well, they got a lot of gold tops. Let's think of something different. And he said, okay, what about an SG like the one that uh, Mick Taylor used in the Stones with the B5 Bigsby, for all you nerds, uh, 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 vibrato uh, arm. And, uh, I said, okay, that's cool. He said, what about a, you know, wild custom color? And he threw out some ideas and I said, wait a second. I, I talked to Abe about it. And he said, what about your 65 casino Epiphone in that crazy black with the grain showing through it's called silver Fox. And, and I thought, oh, that's a really cool idea. There's no such thing in it as an SG in that color. It would make it stand out. So I came back to him. He said, that's cool. Yeah, I came to Gibson with the idea. And they said, we haven't shot that guitar color since 1965 or whatever. And that was only wow. Epiphone. Gibson's never shot it. We literally have to learn how to make that color. And I said, well, we've got some ideas. Let's try it. And so they'd get some mahogany and try these things. And we just did all these tests until we got it. And so that's what we did. And then, the, of course, the white pick guard and the special touch of the white truss cover. Right. And uh, then noodling with other things like, is the pickup selector ring white or do you want to low key it with black? And we went with black. Then it was about many other little features that, you know, ended up really working out great. And that guitar is something, you know, they're very happy with and I'm very proud of and honored, obviously. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not uh, Slash or Jerry Cantrell. It's like I'm Brian Ray. It's not like I'm some giant name or something. So I'm super honored about that. But yeah, and then we did a second one uh, in a, a White Fox, which is like just the opposite. It's like a white see-through with grain uh, in a pearlescent white. And it's a junior, but it's not just any junior. It's a super junior with a P90 and a dummy coil hidden under the bridge for noise canceling. Ah, like, yes, yes, yes. Like yes, Les yes, Paul yes. did on his very first P90 guitars that had a dummy coil under it. Uh, anyway, so yeah, and that one is kind of a super junior with um, binding and with big inlays and uh, all that stuff. It's kind of a dream junior, I guess is what you would call it, with an ebony block uh, vibrato, so... That's right. It's got the cool pearl thing on the on the yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. it's a cool one too, man. Super, super lucky, you know. That's awesome. I can dig it. I can dig it all. So what are your plans for the near future? What do you got going on? Um, I just finished uh, some recording that uh, will be coming out on Wicked Cool Records over the next year or two. I've got a solo deal with a little Steven Van Zandt's record label called oh, cool. Wicked Cool Records. And um, as a result of that, <clears throat> I get a lot of airplay on his Sirius XM show, <clears throat> The Underground Garage, uh, Channel 21, which plays, you know, the coolest rock and roll, in my opinion, you know, it's like garage rock. It's it's sort of white guys trying to sound like British guys who are trying to sound like black guys right, from right. Yeah, It's just <laughs> like it's gone around the world and come back around, and that is garage rock. And I find it a fascinating era in music, and that's sort of where I've planted my flag and lucky that people want to hear more of it, so I just keep doing it, you know? Excellent. Yeah. And in terms of uh, touring and stuff, obviously with with the Cove here, I mean, I, I know we've canceled everything. We got a gig like on New Year's, but <laughs> I canceled my Europe tour. I was supposed to be in Europe right now, as a matter of fact. But it's kind of one of those interesting things. I mean, you know, I've talked about this with a lot of folks during these these chats about um, how being home during COVID has kind of uh, made you kind of reformulate how you feel about certain aspects of your career. Have you had any kind of aha moments during uh during the COVID hideaway, shall we say, about, you know, pursuing what you really want to do in terms of different musical stuff and what you don't want to do and that kind of stuff? Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, it's pretty clarifying in a way, and it had a way of sort of focusing your mind. And I enjoyed having some time off, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, we're on a wait and see mode right now with Paul. You never know. Um, but it's all up to him as it always is. And uh, he'll do the right thing when it's time, whatever that is. Um, in the meantime, I really love making records. I love writing music and toiling over a lyric and having breakthrough moments and then getting in the studio and creating a world that's like a three minute movie for your imagination and um, I love that so much. So I'll just continue doing that. And uh, that's my thing. You know, I, I love doing it so much. I'm, I'm very happy when I'm recording and writing and releasing music. Excellent. Yeah, man. Because well, it never gets boring. It's glorious. Yeah, it's always it's a new mystery all the time. Like, will an idea appear, you know, and if it does, will I be willing and kind of lasso it down out of the, the blue sky? You know, that's that's the thing. Excellent. Now, are you, if, I, when the interview happened, uh, you were at your house in Palm Springs. Do you live in Palm Springs and L.A., or do you, do you kind of go back? Where do you do your recording when you when you do at a home studio, or where do you like to go? Yeah, so all of my recording is done here in Santa Monica, where I am now. Oh, you're in Santa Monica. Um, okay. And uh, my last uh, – my Palm Springs place is a place that doesn't really have a studio or even a clock. It's just like the time – the land where time forgot, you know, and, um, and, uh, I like it that way. I, I like the peace and serenity of it. And I, I go the, out there when the weather permits. I mean, I don't do well in super hot weather, but I do there, do well there when it's kind of normal. And so I, I go back and forth, but I go there for inspiration and for getaways. 
Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. It was an absolute pleasure. Hopefully one of these days we'll actually cross paths in person when the madness subsides. That would be awesome. Hey, Greg, this was a total blast. Thank you so much. Great questions. Great chat. Like-minded vagabond like yourself. (laughs) All right, Brian, take care of yourself. Thanks again. Okay, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her.